Yeah, I think the fact that we had no resources in a way was inspiring because we weren't kind of hemmed um, in by like, oh my God, we don't have a budget to do this. We're just like, what can we do with zero budget? Story for you. Yep, I'm Matt Levinson and I might have a story for you today. I first met Lee Tran Lam at the Sydney radio station FBI. Lee Tran was doing a show called The Bridge, I think it was at the time. I'm not sure how it happened, but within a year or two, we'd formed this little crew of fine dining fanatics that would go out and test out different restaurants. Since then, she's become not just an excellent eating companion or even an oracle to the best places to eat both of which are absolutely true, in a real way she's changed the culture around eating in Sydney. When Time Out profiled her as a future shaper last year, they described Lee Tran as one of the most relevant changemakers in Australia's media landscape today. She's written for stacks of outlets, including The Herald, Gourmet Traveller, The Fin, Lifted Brow, SBS Food, and interviewed just so many great people along the way, Dan Hong, Farron Adria, Lee Sales, even a personal fave, Cheryl Strait, who I would love to have a chance to chat with. But in many ways, it's Lee Tran's side hustles and the kind of projects that take working till three in the morning to make happen that have made the most change. Her amazing food blog, The Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry, her wonderful and long-running local music show on FBI, Local Fidelity, countless zines, and most recently, an incredible guide to new voices in food writing. Lee Tran is just one of those people you love to know. Curious, encouraging, hardworking, forthright, good-humoured, with an enthusiasm that's just infectious. She's almost certainly the only person I'll ever get to interview who's had a sandwich named after her, and I'm sure that follows her absolutely everywhere she goes. I've interviewed stacks of people along the way, and one thing I realised is that I never get a chance to ask them the kind of nosy questions that you ask in an interview. Um... And it's probably true for all of us, I guess, when you think about it. All these great people around us that do these amazing things and we, we never really dig into why or even sometimes what they've done to get there. So that's what this podcast is about. I'm going to get to know some of these great people better. Lee Tran, thank you so much for being part of this. Oh, wow. Thank you for that very amazing intro. And I hope you get to interview Larry David because he has a sandwich named after him. Too. Oh my God, that is the dream. And I'm sure, you know, interviewing hilarious people is actually one of the most challenging things. And I've, whenever I've done that, I've found myself super nervous and awkward all the way through. So I'm not sure. Maybe I've got to do a little bit of prep before I do something like that. But Lee Tran, it's so great to have you on the show. I read um, that as a kid, you mentally rewrote misspelt menu entries at the restaurants you went to, which suggests that this food thing goes back a long, long way. What's your earliest memory? Yeah, isn't it interesting? I think like a lot of children of uh, refugee or migrant parents, I think I took a lot of it for granted when I was younger. So I grew up in Cabramatta, which is in Western Sydney, which now, you know, it's diversity, it's attraction as a place to get, you know, fur or bunsau or, you know, the Tan Viet um, chicken and egg noodles is used as a 
a tourism draw card. But when I was growing up, I was really embarrassed that, you know, there wasn't a McDonald's <laughs> where I grew up. And I took for granted, you know, going out with, you know, my dad and him eating like tomato rice and steak in a Vietnamese restaurant or, you know, the shells of all the tropical fruits we would get that you probably wouldn't be able to get out of Coles at the time, like, you know, rambutan and lychees and longan and, you know, kind of stacking up those shells of those Asian fruits that they grew up with because uh, they grew up in Vietnam. So I think I took it for granted, things like that, things like my grandmother was a vegetarian and I remember um, this fried egg dish with cut up uh, bitter melon crescent, so oh fried God. in the pan, lots of pepper. And so at the time I completely took that for granted and because the media around me, like I didn't see Asian people on TV or hear them on radio or, or anything and so I was embarrassed, yeah, there wasn't a McDonald's, there wasn't that, you know, supposedly mainstream food culture to the point when there was a KFC that did open in Cabramatta that was a very momentous event and then I felt really shamed that it had to close through, I guess, lack of patronage. Whereas now I think, isn't it great that Cabramatta doesn't have a McDonald's? Isn't it great that it doesn't have a KFC? Because you can go to any of those around the world and they're kind of the same with a few regional, you know, distinctions, whereas, you know, Cabramatta is Cabramatta because of that very unique blend of multicultural eateries. You worked in your parents' corner shop when you were growing up and, you know, I can only imagine that that must have been a really unique experience. Um, one of the things that I, I really think is striking about you is your work ethic and that goes through so much of what you do. What was it like? What kind of shop was it? Well, I was 12 years old and it was in Haberfield, which I think still is, is known for having a very um, high Italian, Australian community. And to me, that was like a little bit of an adjustment coming from Cabramatta, which is like very multicultural in that I remember on the bus, you'd sit next to someone whose parents are from Cambodia and someone else whose parents are from what was then Yugoslavia. It was like a real mix of people. And then when I moved to Haberfield, I was like one of three Asian kids in the entire school. So that was a bit of a shock. And I remember a teacher saying to a kid standing next to me that they should help me practice my English, even though like wow. in my previous I literally topped my grade in English. So that was a bit of an adjustment like a lot of like I remember one guy just saying well what are you like he he just didn't understand like he's like how can you be supposedly an Australian person but have an Asian face like it was quite an adjustment like a very you know as I say public facing role in that you're having to account encounter a lot of people's uh I guess maybe I don't know if discomfort is the right word or lack of uh, familiarity with someone who happens to have Asian heritage. So that was an, a bit of an adjustment. But I think one thing that was good, but having to like face a bunch of strangers every single day and sell them, you know, the newspaper or bread or Devon or whatever, is it did make me overcome my shyness. And I think it did help foster uh, curiosity 
about people because, you know, you're there all day and the only thing that kind of changes that makes it interesting is who you talk to and whether you can get an interesting conversation out of that. So maybe in a way it was like a, you know, journalism degree with training wheels very early on, like the no frills (laughs) version of that very early on. There's something so unvarnished about that experience that relationship between someone who's behind a counter and someone who's buying something isn't there yeah yeah and it's interesting and it's I think it's like any conversation it has a potential to go as far or as you know not so far as you're willing to put into it and you know sometimes you just don't have the energy to kind of get into someone's life story when you know they buy the daily newspaper but sometimes it can go into really interesting places you moved from Cabramatta over to Haberfield. You were working in the shop there and you wound up going to Burwood High, I think it is. Um, and so, you know, in a way, like we've over the last couple of years, we've seen this, you know, um, whole experience where people in the West, the so-called LGAs of concern, got this totally different experience of COVID to people who were sort of in the inner city and the inner east. And we've sort of seen that there's still this real divide between those areas. And that must have been so much more pronounced at that time. Did you feel like, I, I mean, you've alluded to that in a certain way already, but did you really feel that shift? And, and do you feel like that informs, you know, having had that experience so early on, informs what you do now? Yeah, it's interesting because when you say you're from Western Sydney, like how long does that kind of credential last for? Because, you know, I grew up there, but I currently don't live there. But I do have certain insights about that experience. And, you know, I still have family who live there. And it was very interesting. I remember during that time, during that lockdown in, you know, mid-2021 last year, just before, or I think in the very early stages before all the different LGAs got locked off, uh, my sister drove me to get my first vaccination shot. And then by the time I had to get my second one, she couldn't do it because she lived in one of those LGAs of concern. So she wasn't allowed really to leave her suburb. And I thought it was kind of strange that it was considered more of a public health measure that I could jump into you know, a random taxi with someone I don't know at all and they're considered less of a risk than my sister, who I know is, like, super careful and, you know, has been super cautious but just happens to live, you know, in an LGA of supposed concern even though she's not really leaving the house at all. And, I mean, that whole lockdown got really politicised because we all know that it started in the eastern suburbs and there was no move to lock down the eastern suburbs when it first sparked. So, yeah, unfortunately, people in certain LGAs, certain council areas got treated. Um, they had a much worse lockdown. Really, and, yeah. Just such a different yeah. experience. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that conversation about when, how long that credential lasts is a really interesting one as well. I mean, you know, I, I moved around a lot as a kid um, but lived in Campbelltown for a while and my grandma um, lived in Chipping Norton, which was just across the road from or across the river from Cabramatta um, when I was growing up. So I spent a lot of time around that area. But in a way, like from there, um, you, I mean, a lot of, I mean, looking at your career, it is a very kind of um, literate career. You've um, you've 
as I said at the start, written for so many different publications and worked across the media. Um, but the first thing that I've been able to find is a story that you wrote for VoiceWorks um, way back when. Um, that's the under-25s journal. And I'm guessing you were about year 10 at the time. How did it come about? Yeah. Is that, was that your first published piece? Yes, it was. I think I was maybe 15. I think it was 19. 96, so definitely giving away my age there. And it was a very <laughs> 90s experience because I remember you got paid $90, which to me was such a lot of money when I – I think I was working for my parents and I got paid $20 a week to work in there. Oh <laughs> in <God>. their corner store, <laughs> $90 was just like winning the jackpot. And I remember I bought maybe like a Smashing Pumpkins band shirt <laughs> with some of my – you know, earnings. I was about to say, when I earned money back then, it was just all ploughed into records. So, I, you know, a band T-shirt would have been like a dream as well at that time. Yeah. So I remember this was probably in the period where I thought, yeah, I think, I, you know, career-wise I want to write. And, you know, this is very old school in that there weren't websites back then. Like I think the first time I even used the internet was – like maybe a year or so later when I did um, work experience with Dr. Carl and he was at the Uni of Sydney and he let us have fun in one of the computer labs and use their free internet. Um, you know, this was back in the day. If you wanted to use the internet, you had to go to an internet cafe to uh, connect with someone over dial-up. Yeah. But, yeah, or, yeah, I think so. Or maybe it would have been the very early days of, you know, getting email for me but in terms of like working out where you could get published there wasn't anything like you have today where you could you know start your own blog or write for a website I remember having to buy you know books that would print out details of like who takes you know submissions and that sort of thing and VoiceWorks I think was on my radar as a place that printed stories or you know artwork by people under maybe 25 or 26 and yeah I sent them in a story which I'm pretty sure has aged horrifically you know probably full of teenage angst um, but yeah they printed it and I think it's less maybe about the quality of the work but just giving people the confidence that maybe they should give a go of it like maybe because everyone starts out not you know it's not it's rare that someone starts out a completely polished writer Totally. And the more important thing is to give people opportunities to really become better and actually even feel like they have permission to even start. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing, that sort of sense of permission that you're actually able to do it. There's a, there's a place for your voice. And I guess all that stuff that you were saying before about not seeing anyone that was like you in the media in, around, you know, that that sense of, yeah, like this is okay, this is something that is available to me must have been a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's something valid about having your work printed in something, like printed in a magazine, getting paid for it. It feels quite legit. And I think, I guess that's what a lot of people kind of want because everyone has you know these dreams of you know it doesn't have to be writing it could be music or acting or various things you know and just having someone sort of take you seriously you know is a massive uh boost to your confidence or massive sense of 
okay, maybe I'm not entirely fraudulent for wanting to pursue this. It must have been about the same time that you made your first zine. How did you get into that? Yeah, so again, dating myself, you know, growing growing up in the 90s, um, there was a lot of, you know, alternative culture and one of those things was zines, um, which are, you know, like fanzines or DIY magazines. And I guess, you know, this is what you made before, you know, maybe today someone would just start up a TikTok account or a Tumblr or something or have a YouTube series. But back in the day, you would make this little, you know, scrappy magazine that you photocopied badly at office works. And, you know, I bought, you know, I bought zines from record stores like, you know, Sydney had, you know, a great range of record stores like, you know, uh, Waterfront Records would always have lots of zines on their floor. Red Eye Records had zines. You know, there were lots of great, like, legit zines coming from America as well. You know, there was Chick Factor, which, you know, famously got immortalised in a Bell and Sebastian song. Yeah. I guess and, that was the right girl time, right, as well. There was a real resurgence around that. Yeah. So I think maybe I got into zines maybe just before that. But it was actually awesome going to Waterfront Records and, like, picking up these free zines that were made locally and reading about places you recognised and written by people that sort of felt like they were similar to you who, you know, spent their money on band shirts that other people at school maybe <laughs> didn't appreciate. And, you know, there was a real sense of feeling community. And it's so hard to kind of describe this if you weren't there. And you, I think today if you're a fan, it's easy to connect to other people. But back then... You know, we we would play music we liked in our classrooms and everyone would boo us because it wasn't, you know, top 40 music. You know, there was a real sense of being a bit alone if you liked anything that was slightly not mainstream and also a greater sense of bonding if you walked down the street and you saw someone wearing a band shirt and you knew that band and you felt like that person, you know, is like me. So I think zines were a way to kind of connect to the world and kind of be hopeful that maybe you would find other people like you. And that definitely happens, like um, going to things like the Young Writers Festival in Newcastle and going to the zine fair and buying other people's zines and meeting people from all across Australia and seeing all the different zines they put out. And I guess because zines are so personal, like they're such, they're almost like diaries. Like no one makes a zine for corporate you know, career climbing purposes. It's all very kind of handmade and you're putting your heart and brain on every A5 stapled page. So you're really putting your identity in this like little stapled booklet. And yeah, it was a really great way to connect with people and also kind of work out what, you know, some of that writing was probably terrible. And I think I would die of embarrassment if I read some of it now. (laughs) But it was just a good way to, you know, just keep writing and keep doing stuff. I dug out a few of your old zines when I was um, preparing for this. And, you know, I just love the enthusiasm that comes through on every page. Um, you know, you've done a lot of time since then and and right throughout working in commercial media. And we'll talk a bit about that in a little bit where there can be, you know, pressure on word counts, pressure to make sure your work is commercially viable, that people are going to buy it on the newsstand or, you know, want to keep on subscribing or whatever it is. And 
you know, sometimes in that kind of commercial setting, the work can start to feel a bit same-ish. There's a bit of a sheen. It's a bit safe. You know, it's being um, put through this kind of self-censorship, like, is this going to work in a commercial sense? And one of the things I just love so much about your writing, wherever I see it, is this, you know, you're really comfortable with being a fan and being excited, being enthusiastic about things. And particularly the, the areas that you work in, music, food, are areas where, you know, we're so used to people having a real studied sort of jadedness or studied cool to them. Do you ever feel like a bit of a round peg in a square hole? Um, it's interesting because there are, like in music and in food, there are some people I'm like, their work is amazing and I love what they do and, you know, I would love to be considered, you know, of that standard, you know, I'll keep dreaming. And then there are other people who kind of take an approach that I I would probably not take. And so I think it kind of depends. And I guess with these within these very big media categories, you, you do have so many different styles. And, you know, you may have read like a really jaded restaurant review where, you know, someone completely destroys an entire restaurant and that feels pretty rough and there are times where you know if they're taking down some like you know multi-million dollar bland corporate juggernaut then maybe that's okay you know that's different to like destroying like a a neighborhood you know as a say mom and pop restaurant um you know I just feel like there's so little space out there that you might as well focus on things you're really enthusiastic about or you think are worth the spotlight or worth kind of cheerleading for or, you know, I feel like sometimes there's a pattern of just repeating the same stuff and so much of this is a privilege, right, being able to listen to music or get excited about music, to play music, like that's a privilege, getting to cover, you know, people who are making really interesting food that's a privilege and sometimes I read some of these things where people are really mad about I don't know the color of a tablecloth or something and I just feel like oh maybe have greater perspective in the world (laughs) do you know what I mean do you know what I'm saying yeah 100% I mean I often feel like uh, you know in my work I, I deal with I work with a lot of journalists and you know I love the sort of sense of entitlement that um, that kind of hardened reporters have, you know, like you need to answer my questions, <laughs> you know, it's my job, you know, I'm going to put these hard questions to you and and you have to answer those. It's it's my right to ask these kind of nosy questions. Um, and, and I love that uh, hardened reporters have that feeling. They need that armour to be able to do their work. But my perspective when I was a media maker was always, you know, like I I was a scientist once upon a time and I go into these conversations just always just hyper aware of the privilege that I've got to stand in front of someone like you, Litra, and and ask all these nosy questions about who you are (laughs) and what makes you tick. And, you know, I'm always amazed at that kind of difference. And, you know, in a way, I guess that's something that I really love about hearing your conversations and your interviews, because I I get that sense as well, that you feel you're always aware of, you know, what a luxury it is to be able to ask these questions about people and and understand what makes them tick. Yeah, for sure. And I also want to make the distinction that, you know, there are reporters that do cover really 
complex topics like, you know, wage theft in the hospitality industry and that sort of thing. And I, I think it's very important to have critical reporting. Yeah. And I just want to make that distinction. Like, there's a difference between like really important critical reporting, like, you know, holding people to account, and then just that kind of catty, getting furious about something that to me feels really insignificant. Like, yeah, whether a tablecloth is the right color. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yes, but in terms of like, I also know like, what am I? Um, better at and I think I really like those human stories where you're kind of pulling out you know maybe something that people don't know like one of my favorite stories that I worked on in the last few years was about a chef called Uday Huja and he grew up in Charlottesville Virginia which unfortunately for a lot of us we have a very negative connotation of what Charlottesville Virginia stands for because of that neo-nazi rally yeah but he grew there he was so his family are uh, they're Sikh so they you know that's a belief they follow and they wore turbans and growing up there one of like the only Indian families in this American place they were highly targeted for racist attacks so Uday said he would wear a turban and it got knocked off so often in these kind of racist attacks that his teachers at school had to learn how to knot the turban because it just happened so frequently. And his dad was a town planner and he came in with this like really progressive idea of, I think, pedestrianising the local mall, which was something that was happening in Europe and around the world. And there was just really intense, like very aggressive and you know, a racist response to him trying to do that, people putting out ads saying, you know, Indian go home and that sort of thing. And one way they fit in was they would cook their version of, like, American soul food but put, like, an Indian spin on it so they'd do, like, uh, you know, American barbecue chicken but, like, do it tandoori style and add their spices. And... Uh, what I love about this story is eventually um, his dad, who goes from being like reviled for having these really progressive ideas, ends up becoming, I think, two-time mayor of this town. So completely accepted and celebrated. And I think that pedestrianised mall is now one of like top landmarks in that city. And his son, so Uday the chef, um, actually ends up cooking for Barack Obama for his very first uh, state dinner. And I just think that's a, like, a really beautiful story of um, not just overcoming adversity, which, you know, adversity that they shouldn't have ever had to face, but that he, you know, kind of um, developed his own kind of like culinary identity um, in this situation and got called up for that state dinner with Barack Obama because, you know, he was this Indian chef, because the state dinner was actually for the, uh, it was for the Indian prime minister of the time. And the, the chef who was presiding over the meal, um, Marcus Samuelson, ended up like putting together a menu that was kind of quite similar to what Uday was doing um, and his family were doing when 
who was younger, which was an American menu, but kind of spiced with these Indian influences. I love the way that um, that food particularly can play such an important gateway. And in a, in a way, some of these sides are so so polarised and people are so locked into their positions. And in some ways, like finding some shared value um, can be a pathway to unlocking some of that stuff. And I mean, we've seen that. I mean, it's almost a cliche and you were referring to it at the start of this conversation about the way that people talk about the West and, you know, the the food culture of Cabramatta and, and various other parts of the West. But I love as a way, you know, I love that kind of story where you see that lead to really substantial change in a way i think that's that's one of the things that really intrigues me about about your work lee tran you know you've worked across these um these really interesting um you know cultural changes and and you know we'll talk about the book that you did um recently in a moment but i'm going to step back a bit you know a lot of your work has looked you know you've covered very early on in the piece you know, vegetarian restaurants and vegan restaurants across Sydney and really platformed those restaurants. Um, You know, you've never been a drinker and you've often profiled, you know, like non-alcoholic options. And we've seen over the last five to 10 years, just a massive paradigm shift in those areas. They're now part of the mainstream culture. And one, one of the things that I'm always intrigued about you I mean, obviously you're so enthusiastic and there's, you know, there's something really infectious about that. How much about that process? I really think that you've been a real change maker in in some of those pieces. How much of it is just who you are, what, you know, your passions for writing and covering things and how much of it have you approached deliberately to try and help change the culture? Oh, yeah. I should clarify, I do drink, but I'm not a, like a massive drinker, like, you know, I do love a Yuzu sake and I do love a Eric Bordelais pear cider when I can afford it. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I've been but drafted I- in a couple of times, you know, way back in, in the day to come and, um, and I know a bunch of other people, to come and, you know, help out testing out the wine menus very early <laughs> on in the piece for you. So I know that it's not your main game. So I think that's even even if you do enjoy a tipple every now and again, I know that you've also been really like celebrated some of those non-alcoholic options and also just kind of like not foregrounding that as much in in the whole experience of food. So, yeah, go tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting also because there's currently this indie food magazine called Verazon, which is run by Maura Tursa in Melbourne who is a sommelier at a restaurant called Manze, which is a Mauritian wine bar. And their wine magazine is all about how wine coverage should be inclusive and it hasn't always been. And I think for me personally, I always felt like unless you grew up with like a wine cellar, um, you always feel a bit unqualified to talk about this stuff. Like, you know, I grew up in a household where like Heineken beer was the most fancy thing that anyone drank. You know, for me, wine always just felt like, it was something that people from like really privileged uh, families drank. It all felt like a bit, you know, outside of uh, my comfort zone. And, you know, there's also a level of privilege that does come with wine because it's really expensive. Um, and to kind of know your wine does cost a lot of money. 
Um, so I guess for me, being interested in non-alcoholic drinks, that's really interesting because you're not fighting against, you know, someone who's drank, you know, thousands of dollars of wine, right? Like you don't have to spend that much money <laughs> to drink non-alcoholic things. But also all of this is kind of being written out, like the the idea of like going to a fancy restaurant and getting like a non-alcoholic pairing, that only started like in the last, what, maybe like 10, 15 years. So it's kind of all happening now. It's really interesting and they're kind of like no rules, which also makes it interesting, whereas I find with wine it's a little terrifying because there's so many different rules and so many ways you could uh, drink the wrong thing or have the wrong opinion and uh, with this, it's all emerging and people are being super creative. And I know Ambrose Chang, who was at Mamafuku Sieba, who pioneered this in Australia, having this kind of non-alcoholic pairing. He was doing, like, really fascinating stuff, like, you know, freezing Earl Grey tea. So, you know, it did this to the tannin structure and then, like, you know, blitzing this so, you know, that would happen, like, it was all super creative. I think he made, although I never got to taste it, something that was meant to be like an aged sake, but he did it with like burnt onions. So I find that all like really creative and interesting. And it's really fascinating that something I happen to be interested in uh, just actually just became part of the zeitgeist because now things like Heaps Normal, that non-alcoholic beer that only launched, I think maybe mid-2020, um, there was a great Good Weekend profile about it by Michael Harry, and it's like the best-selling beer at certain places. Like I think at P&V, which is a very, you know, well-regarded bottle shop, which I think might sell like 50 beers, like Heaps Normal is the best-selling beer there. And um, there was an anecdote from that story that I loved where a bunch of young guys walk into like a bottle shop and they buy some heaps normal, and the cashier kind of feels obligated to say, oh, you know that's not, like, alcoholic beer that doesn't have any booze in it. And the the young men say, oh, yeah, that's what we want. We're, I think they were, like, landscape gardeners, and we have to get up for work really early tomorrow. So what we want uh, is an actual non-alcoholic beer. Uh, which tastes like pretty similar to the you know, to the real thing. Like, it just tastes like a light beer. But uh, it's interesting that for a whole bunch of reasons, like um, with vegetarian and vegan food, um, environmentally there's been a movement towards that. Health-wise there's been a movement towards that. And I think the movement towards uh, more interest in non-alcoholic consumption uh, it's also a variety of things, right? People are a bit more uh, concerned about their health. But when I did a story for Gourmet Traveller about how Australians were having their, the least amount of alcohol in like 50 years and why that was, and someone pointed out that probably with the rise of social media, you don't want to be like posting about how plastered you are or, you know, you don't want that documented, right, that you really got wasted the other day uh, at a club and I think there's also like you know trends that um you know I don't super love the wellness trend but I can see how you know an interest in non-alcoholic consumption has t- 
tapped into that. And also, you know, what makes it interesting is it used to be you went to a restaurant and if you wanted to drink, it was, oh, wine is only what you can be offered in terms of this is a good restaurant because they have interesting wines on their menu. Yeah. But now you can like such interesting stuff. You can get, you know, there's wildflower. They do these wild ales where they capture wild yeast from different sources um, across New South Wales. So they only use wild yeast. So that could be like wattle or uh, I think maybe banks, yeah, um, like different flowers across New South Wales. And they take the wild yeast from that and then they make beer with that. But they also, you know, they've experimented with saltbush. Um, they've experimented with all sorts of interesting things. And to me, there's so many... Uh, I think potential mm, things worth drinking that aren't just like what's your, you know, most expensive champagne or do you have Barolo on the menu? Like sake is so fascinating. They're they're always like really interested fermented drinks that aren't wine. And so I I just think that's really great that you can go somewhere and it's – it's not just about the most expensive wine. Yeah, on the I, lo- I love that creative explosion that's happened. You know, like just such a fundamental cultural shift, but also a creative explosion in the kind of products that have been created. And I'm, you know, very eager to try that wildflower. I've never, I've never actually tried it, so I am definitely going to give that a go. Um, Lee Chan, your latest project is, I mean, there's so much to say about it, but. I think, you know, it's it's an amazing window into the talent in Sydney. And I think we so often get caught up with the same voices that we always hear from. And, you know, what you've done, I mean, I'll just recap. You've um, killer Instagram channel, um, beautiful anthology of food writing and backed by this database of getting towards 50 writers, um, people from diverse cultural backgrounds for want of, of a better word, Tell me where this started. Okay. And I should say, like, I should not get full credit for this because a lot of people have worked on this too. And I think I unfairly get um, more of the spotlight than I deserve. But basically the idea for the Diversity in Food Media Australia project um, that you're alluding to happened. I think, you know, there were a lot of conversations after the very tragic death of George Floyd about, representation and power and you know who gets a platform who gets listened to um who really gets represented in the media and I remember at the time feeling like you know this is you know a few months into the pandemic and a lot of media outlets were kind of closing their books because you know their budgets were being cut or for you know economic reasons they weren't publishing many freelancers or outsiders is all kind of in-house publishing and unfortunately when you don't have a very diverse media industry as a whole like it's not just food media all across the board in terms of you know who reads the news and who's on commercial radio um you know um i think media diversity australia have done like really great reporting of the statistics on this um when because of the pandemic, people were just relying on their staff. And if the staff aren't really diverse and don't reflect the um, 
the diversity of the community, um, you kind of have a very, and that's not to say people can't do a good job, right? I don't want to like say, you know, if you're a white middle class person, you can't do really good food journalism. I think anyone can as long as they do it with um, cultural context and an open-mindedness and, you know, do their research. But I remember having a conversation with Levens, who you know, who is, you know, Andrew Levens, DJ, podcaster, uh, man of many hats. Indeed, yeah. And he, yeah, yeah. And he was just talking about how frustrating it is that he would just kind of see the same kind of food reporting by the same people who have very similar life experiences, who all kind of live in the same area. And the potential for such wider food coverage was there and like what do we do about it and a bunch of us who are all freelancers were like okay what can we do and we're freelancers so it's not like we're you know the power of being for instance an editor at a magazine or a website or an established publication is you can say okay uh these are people I should know about I can publish them but it was hard because at this time a lot of people were cutting their budgets and they weren't publishing anything new and you know coverage was getting coverage was shrinking you know and we're like what can we do as freelancers who don't have any budget to do anything and we just kind of thought of some simple things that we could do so I started an Instagram Instagram account diversity in food media where I thought okay if editors do want to commission people and a lot of the time the excuses but I don't know who like I don't know who I'd love to commission more people but I don't know who to hire at least if I profile um, people that maybe don't have the spotlight but should be in the spotlight who are from underrepresented communities and you know it's a small thing to do for someone to just follow an account right that's you know you can maybe have a little bit of change that way if you just increase the profile of certain people and that's something you can do for free and then out of that sprang the idea um, to have a database where we got people to add themselves and that's also inspired by um, someone else who did this prior to us for arts critics and so that was inspired by their work and you know it was really great that I found out that people who added their names to that database got work like someone I think Angie Yang She'd never written that much before and she ended up getting work on the WA Good Food Guide because of that. So I love how that effective re- a simple intervention like that can be. You know, you were looking at the problem and thinking what, what is within our power to do and, you know, just making a Google spreadsheet and whipping up an Instagram. You know, they're relatively simple interventions. I'm not discounting that there's a lot of work behind the scenes to do it, but they're not expensive they don't take an inordinate amount of resources to make them happen but they are a really direct path to the change that you want to see right yeah I think the fact that we had no resources in a way was inspiring because we weren't kind of hemmed um in by like oh my god we don't have a budget to do this we're just like what can we do with zero budget and let's do it and then the new voices on food anthology came out of that because I knew the guys who were doing um who were running this really great small publisher called some kind and they came out of the pandemic so March 2020 restaurants have to close to 
um, indoor dining because of, you know, public health orders. And so these guys who started up some kind were like, oh, my God, how are our favourite restaurants going to survive on takeaway only? And so the concept of some kind was let's make these books for our favourite local restaurants. And the model is as long as we get 100 pre-orders, then the book will go to press. And if we don't get 100 pre-orders, then the money just goes to the restaurant. And I think pretty much in every case, all the books have gone to print. And the the model is also much more generous than the traditional, I think, publishing model where the author doesn't get like a huge cut of the profit. Like I think they also made sure the restaurants got a much more generous cut. I think maybe like half of the proceeds or something like that. So... That's like a really good model because you can sell almost a hundred of anything. And when I went to them with the idea of doing um, the new voices on food book of, you know, creating this book, that's a platform for new and emerging voices from people from underrepresented communities. They were like completely on board. And I had a good sense that if we have like 10 people in the book, we could would definitely sell at least a hundred copies. And everyone can sell you know, 10 that, to 10 of their mates, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, what I loved was, one, um, the enthusiasm for this book where I had no marketing budget or anything. Like I just kind of posted on Instagram and messaged a bunch of friends and said, can you please spread the word about this? And I think the speed at which it happened was really amazing as well. So I think late July I get the idea. I think August we opened for submissions for a month. September, I finalise submissions and start editing. And I think the book is out in November. So it's absolutely like mind-blowing, the- that timeline. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's been involved in any kind of print publication, you know, be heads exploding at that timeline. How did you do that? How, how did you com- compress it so tightly? And also why, well, you know, like why did you need to do it so fast? Yeah, I mean, the good thing about that some kind model is they're so small is that they could do that. And also I think they started out with a real sense of urgency of trying to help their favourite restaurants in the pandemic. So the idea was I think originally it was like we'll crowdfund the book if the book meets its target of 100 copies pre-sold. The finished book will be out in maybe around six weeks or so. And I think, you know, that's kind of, change depending on like the you know ambitiousness of the book or like circumstances because you know running a restaurant and then also putting out a book is like uh, a pretty tough thing to pull off but I think it was actually good to have that real sense of immediacy that people were I think really happy to support something that they would have in their hands in a few months and it was also really nice to be able to you know read something and go oh my god we need to put this in this book and then it's printed just a few months later and how I pulled it off is I stayed up till 3 a.m and got up at 9 a.m again like for a very long time it was very tiring (laughs) and it's also the kind of thing where you know it's not like I didn't make any money out of this but in terms of like you don't really do it for the money if you kind of worked out how much I got paid versus the hours I put into it it's probably very similar to when I got $20 a week to work in my parents' 
corner store, you know. Um, so I also had like a lot of um, help and encouragement from the other guys in the diversity in food media group in terms of them spreading the word and um, encouraging people to submit. And the thing that I found really inspiring is because this wasn't about, oh, I've been published in, you know, these distinguished publications before. It was like, we don't really care um, as long as you are from an underrepresented community. And we had like a range of people. We had, um, uh, you know, someone in the book, she has a chronic illness, Chloe Sargent. So she wrote about how cooking changed her relationship with having her chronic illness. And uh, one of the stories I loved, and every time I had to reread it for proofreading and that sort of thing, I would just be so moved, is by Ahmad Hakim, who is a refugee from Iran. And he grew up uh, in a part of the world that, you know, his family have been in this part of the world going back like a thousand years. And he wrote so beautifully about how they lived around this reeded lake and how his mother would take like her, her headscarf off and kind of scoop it through the lake and all these like fish, these tiny fish would kind of be scooped up into uh, her headscarf and how they would, I think they had buffalo and she would fry soft dates in like, you know, fresh buffalo butter and, you know, they would plant tomatoes and do all this really hard work. And then I think they would dig um, watermelons and put them in the ground and then work all day and work up a sweat and then pull out the watermelon after they'd done all this hard farming work and how refreshing it was, uh, you know, to have this watermelon that had been sitting in the cool earth all day. But the sad thing is because Ahmad advocated for education rights, um, for ethnic minorities, um, he he was persecuted, and some of his friends his friends sadly were killed for this. So he fled Iran. I think he made it to Syria, and then he escaped from Syria to Jordan by like hiding, I think under a bus for like an hour, and he wow. got to Jordan, and I think he was interrogated, and you know had a really horrible time, but. Australia did actually accept him for asylum and he made it to Adelaide and he became a chef and, you know, and the recipe he puts with his story is, I think, one of the date recipes that his mum used to make back in Iran. So I thought having that story was really important, especially at a time where, you know, the the coalition government have been really um, uh, adamant to silence voices of detained refugees or you know you know there was a very long period that if you were a journalist and you wanted to do reporting on offshore detention centers just getting to those offshore detention centers were was pretty much impossible or like purposely it's extremely expensive and prohibitive so yeah, I in thought, fact extremely pre- like you know uh, visas jacked up and actually incredibly hard to you know, get access to those places. Earlier, um, Lee Chan, you drew a distinction in a way between kind of those serious journalists as you were kind of um, putting mm. it who, you know, might, you know, look at industrial reform and these kind of issues and someone who's doing food writing. But actually, for, from my perspective, and, and, you know, I've worked in um, 
in um, campaigning for refugee rights in, in a few different organizations over the years. And you see that hardline reporting in the in the media that is serious and that is taking on some of these issues and you know it's not really leading to change but some of these stories that you're able to tell and able to surface in your work through through projects like this you know they're actually the stories that melt people's hearts and change change some of that kind of hardened culture that is allowing some of this policy to to um to be produced so i you know, it really inspires me, and I, and and these kind of rich stories are just such an important part of our culture. They make us better, um, but it's um, not just the people, but hearing their stories, and and that's something that I I think is worth celebrating. Yeah, for sure. And I think what makes food media so interesting to me is food is something we have to interact with every day because we all have to eat, right? But it's not just about, you know, putting something in your stomach to keep those, you know, uh, loud stomach rumbles away. But food covers so much. It's um, about cultural identity. It's about refugees. It's about the environment. It is about power in a lot of cases. Like I think about, for instance, um, there's a great reporter who was at The Guardian who I think won a Walkley I think his name is Naaman Zhu, and he won a Walkley for his reporting. It's going off to New York reporting. now, right? Yeah, yeah, and he won a Walkley for his reporting on uh, the food delivery drivers who were sadly killed um, while delivering food for those um, food delivery apps. And and I think this is a really good example of why diversity in food media is important, or diversity in media in general, is um, he talked about how because he wasn't working with an interpreter, um, because I think um, there were there was a delivery driver whose family were from China, and because he actually his mum his mum actually uh, Naaman Zhu's mum got like a reporting credit <laughs> on the work that he did because she helped him talk to uh, the family in Chinese, and he said he felt that having that actually made like a really big difference in terms of uh, being able to connect to the, to the family of uh, the sadly um, killed driver and being able to get a story that was very different to someone who maybe just hired a translator for the day. And I think, um, yeah, that's that's why we should have people from, you know, all sorts of different um, experiences covering food like I think of something that was really powerful that I read last year which was a restaurant review by Pete Wells in the New York Times and it was about a wine bar run by two men who I think um they're wheelchair users and their wine bar which I think is called Contento is all about making a wine bar as accessible as possible to people with a disability and so Pete Wells brought um, someone with him who has a disability and she was just able to give um, an insight into uh, what it's like to navigate the world as someone with a disability who's used to, like, often being shut out of these venues. And, um, you know, she just had insight into, like, okay, so, you know, the entrance into the wine bar 
you know, there's plenty of room for a wheelchair user. There's none of that like, okay, I'm having to force my way into this very cramped space, which is in every physical detail saying I'm not welcome here. And, yeah, there were just so many, even like the way they designed the bathroom to make it really friendly to people with a disability, um, which maybe, you know, someone without a disability would not have been able to pick up those details and highlight the the real hard work they had done in making this um, wine bar, like, so inclusive. Leitran, I love, um, I just love the breadth of interest that you have and, and this depth as well. Um, I feel like this conversation could go on indefinitely. Uh, this is a 30-minute-ish podcast, and I think we're cruising towards double that. Um, but I've, there's not been a moment that I wouldn't have wanted to um, be chatting for this last, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. But got to wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lee Tran. Um, you can find Lee Tran's work all over the internet, but I reckon the best place to start is probably her Instagram, instagram.com slash Lee Tran Lamb. I really love the way that you use Instagram, Lee Tran, I, I, particularly with the new voices in food. I, I feel like you've really pushed the edges of of how that channel can work. Um, you can find the link tree in, her, in Lee Tran's bio, um, which has all the other projects in it, including a link to her Patreon and um, a subscription to Crunch Time, Lee Tran's weekly podcast and newsletter. Lee Tran, um, is there anything else that people should do? No, that's great. Thank you for all your amazing and very thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for joining me. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. Thank you so much for listening and for all the tremendous feedback I got on the first round with Nick Robinson from Good Citizens. If you're coming to this for the first time, take a listen to that one. Go back. Here's an amazing story too. And let me know what you think. Um, best place to do that is on Twitter, um, at Matt underscore Levinson. And if you like it, subscribe, leave a rating, all that usual stuff. And I might have some more stories for you in the future. Okay.